Welcome to the Cardboard Herald Reviews, where we give you audio versions of our game reviews and then go behind the scenes of our creative process. Hey everyone, this is going to be a little bit different of an episode. This is the audio from a video which I recorded as audio. Uh, It's hard to explain, but this is the 20 favorite games ever video that I just put up that I'm really proud of and has received some awesome feedback. And I'm just putting the audio version of the list. There's actually a little bit more for the before and after, and there's overlays on the video itself with all sorts of imagery that associates to it. But this was originally recorded in the studio with the intention of having accompanying B-roll. And so this is just going to be the list as I originally recorded it here. I don't have too many additional thoughts that I wanted to get into. Maybe this little preamble here in saying that I, I'm terrible at committing to my favorite games. I feel like I'm betraying the games that I don't include in lists. And I'm feeling like I'm having to overcommit by sticking to a game that is my number one game that'll be written on my grave. So I try to approach it with a a degree of self-awareness that the whole exercise of ordering lists is an exercise in futility and, and it is a completely silly concept because these are such subjective thoughts on such incomparable things that are such complete crazy experiences. But if push came to shove and I had to rank based off of the enjoyment the purity of my experiences with these games, the fondness which with which I look back on them, and the 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 actual comprehensive understanding of these games, this is probably the order that I would come up with. Or I guess it's not probably. It is the order I came up with. And yeah. So I'm really proud of the video. I hope you dig the podcast. Uh, Maybe I'll have like an additional thoughts and review Q&A that I put up as a video later on down the road. And if you dig this at all, I highly recommend you check out the video itself. I'll put the links in the show notes to the video channel as well as the specific video. And I think the stuff in there is really cool. If you're particularly interested in one game versus another on the video in the description, there's like hyperlinks to all of the different uh, ones that are in the in the video. So, yeah, I think I've said video enough times. I think I've said enough enough times. So here we go. Here is the Cardboard Herald's top 20 favorite games as of the end of 2018. Number 20, Star Wars Imperial Assault. If I'm being honest, this is a stand-in for my nostalgia of HeroQuest, which I couldn't justify putting on this list because it's A, super clunky by modern standards, and B, completely and utterly unavailable new. But the closest I've felt to HeroQuest's particular brand of 1v-all dungeon crawling with suspenseful highs and lows, unique characters, branching upgrades, devious machinations, and finely tailored adventures full of wondrous discovery is Imperial Assault. 
Add to the fact that you can now play solo and co-op with an app that receives a healthy amount of updates, and this is both my favorite tabletop adaption of Star Wars and my favorite traditional dungeon crawl in existence. Number 19, The Tale of Ord. The debut game by Post Curious, Tale of Ord, is a narrative puzzle adventure spanning four chapters, full of some of the most cryptic and rewarding puzzles I've ever solved. I played through this over several sessions with my wife, and the result was one of the most memorable gaming experiences of our lives. While I won't spoil any of the surprises, I will tell you that some of the handmade physical components will astonish you. The fantastic online hint system will keep you on track, and perhaps most impressive, the story that unfolds both on and beyond the table involving symbology, astrology, archaeology, technology, and tons of other ologies is really, really well written. Number 18, Ethnos. Being a Tolkien guy, I am a sucker for John Howe's art, and fortunately for me, Ethnos is a Middle-Earth game in all but name. It just happens to play unlike any other Middle-Earth game available. A quick-playing set collection area control game where the draw pile is assembled by combining several different races together, Ethnos is addictive, beautiful, easy to learn, and the sheer number of combinations makes it incredibly replayable. Oh, also, I really dig the hyper-colored tokens against the muted backgrounds. Sorry, haters, Ethnos is one of the best best-looking games in the biz. Number 17, Seven Wonders Duel. I don't know that there is any better two-player game or better two-player improvement over a parent game than Seven Wonders Duel. Due to the military science and prestige victory conditions, this game is a three-way tug-of-war that is tense, aggressive, and full of options. Also, Duel showcases one of my favorite Catholicisms, which is to always emphasize opportunity costs. Few games have me wishing so badly that I could just take back-to-back -back turns, because I know that whether I'm choosing from among the available cards or revealing more for my opponent to grab, there are always tough decisions in this game. Number 16, Eclipse. Eclipse is way better than Twilight Imperium and you know it. Okay, onward to number 15. Okay, 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 fine. Look, Eclipse feels like Star Trek, expansive, exploratory, and diplomatic. Yes, there are fights that happen, but the drama comes from between the fights, negotiating territory, and engaging in future tech arms races. With tons of asymmetric powers, branching paths, and an incredible sense of discovery by flipping tiles, Eclipse is without a doubt my favorite 4X game, and I will gladly Agni Kai across the stars to defend my interstellar honor any day of the week. Number 15, Codenames. Codenames is a loud, raucous, and hilarious party game, but it's also a deadly, serious, contemplative game of wits and cunning. But no matter how you slice it, this is one of the best games for a party because it works equally well as a game that you are playing as it does a spectator sport. People can't help but be glued to the tension as players delicately guess their clues and are always ready to laugh along and at you when it goes awry. Even better, it breaks everyone into teams, so new gamers who might be shy about playing a game largely based on shared knowledge and in-jokes have the comfort of knowing that they have a team behind them. Number 14, Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep is a now classic worker placement game about acquiring and spending people for your own personal gain. 
Well, by people I mean adventures, and personal game I mean political clout in the D&D port city of Waterdeep. While I think the secret roles in the base game have grown a little stale by modern standards, the gameplay is still incredibly solid, both perfect as a gateway game and fully satisfying as a midweight strategy sesh. Also, it trades on D&D's unique flavor of fantasy beautifully, while still keeping things approachable for people who might not otherwise like fantasy. Just pretend you're in Victorian England domesticating particularly stubborn sheep instead of ferocious owl bears. Number 13, Game of Thrones 2nd Edition. Number 13 is a strange game on my list because it's hard to get to the table and I have more fond memories of playing it in the past than I have drive to force people to join into a game. But every time that I get together with my old group, having largely separated our different ways due to schedules, jobs, families, and other commitments, nothing really compares with the experience. A claustrophobic game, Thrones forces you to make alliances to succeed, with all parties knowing full well betrayal is inevitable, strategic, thematic, Merciless, this is my all-time favorite big box stompy strategy war game. Number 12, Flamme Rouge. I promise, I'm typically a mechanics first guy, but number 12 may be strongly influenced by one of my largest non-gaming passions, which is cycling. That said, this is a breakneck game full of tension that captures the intensity and, well, cycle of cycling incredibly well, with few cards, few pieces, and a wonderful customizable board you are trying to jockey for position among all racers and capitalizing on their position, constantly gauging how and when to conserve energy or throw the hammer down, smart, fast, approachable, and downright fun. This is my favorite racing game of all time. Number 11, Root. Root is a newcomer in 2018 and has won my heart. Thematically imaginative, boldly asymmetric, and in truth, ultimately simple in scope, the Forest of Root is the perfect area control playground for those overlapping systems to unwind. Root can be janky, it can be difficult to learn, and it can be unpredictable in practice, but somehow it remains strategic, engaging, and charming. Between Kyle Farron's art and Cole Whirl's ability to tightly marry nuanced theme and clever mechanics, Root has quickly become my go-to area control fave. Plus, those meeples are so damn cute. Number 10, Kakazone. Of all the gateway classics like Ticket to Ride, Catan, Pandemic, and Dominion, Carcassonne is the one that I can still break out the vanilla game with completely experienced gamers and have fun. Incredibly simple in concept with immense strategic depth, Carcassonne is equally fitting for a relaxing, passive evening as it is suited for a full-on table of no-good, tricksy, cutthroat castle thieves. What more can I say that hasn't already been said about this all-time classic? Carcassonne is awesome. Number 9. Five Tribes. If Seven Wonders Duel, co-designed by Bruno Catala, is a game about a few really good possibilities, Five Tribes is all about all the possibilities. Set in a very westernized, fictional Arabic desert similar to Disney's Agrabah, Five Tribes has you migrating groups of people from tile to tile in a souped-up version of Mancala. With tons of special powers and multiple paths of gaining points, Five Tribes looks like candy on the table, and you'll feel like it too as you delightfully pick which color of meeple marshmallow that you want to activate. Fair warning though, Five Tribes may be the most analysis paralysis prone game that I love, so just be cautious when playing with someone who wants to calculate everything. Number 8. Viticulture 
I've said it before and I'll say it again, Viticulture Essential Edition is one of the most perfectly crafted pieces of gaming awesomeness in existence. The game is approachable, yet satisfyingly complex, thematic but mechanically rich, beautiful components and illustrations, but also understated and affordable. It also combines the best aspects of original Viticulture and Tuscany into a much more substantial and nuanced worker placement game with a rich and engaging theme. It's great for people taking their first steps beyond a gateway, yet it still delivers a heavyweight feeling and a mid-weight experience. Number 7, Catacombs 3rd Edition. Look, if you are willing to dismiss this purely on the basis that Catacombs is a dexterity game, then you more than anyone else needs to listen to this. Incredibly thematic and mind-blowingly clever, Catacombs is able to convey complex ideas that would normally take endless explanation in intuitive ways, merely by operating in physical space. Casting a freezing spell? Leave the frozen disc on the creature until it's knocked off. Hiding behind cover? Move your disc behind a pillar and use the one-inch marker to shoot around the corner. While there is no campaign, each session of Catacombs encompasses several rooms where heroes face off against enemies controlled by the Overseer, gaining skills, treasures, and allies along the way, making for one of the most imaginative dungeon crawl experiences I have ever played. Catacombs isn't just great for a dexterity game, it is a great game made better by being a dexterity game. Number 6, Caverna. My personal favorite of Uwe Rosenberg's games, Caverna is Empowerment Incarnate. You want to have a thousand sheep? Invest in sheep. Want to level up your dwarves and go on grand adventures? Sure, why not? While there are definite changes from game to game that will impact your decision making, Caverna is about choice and opportunity, a veritable sandbox to play in compared to its cousin Agricola's punitive futility. Don't get me wrong, they are both great, but the freedom and empowerment to explore the systems makes Caverna one of my absolute favorite games. Number 5. Suburbia Never before has a game scratched such a specific SimCity-ish itch for me as Suburbia. Though it's an abstracted macro look at city building, this is an incredibly engrossing and thematic game that feels like you're developing a new city full of history and personality every game. With tons of synergies and some light player interaction through the tile availability, it's also a very strategic game where you are constantly balancing your population growth with your income if you want to achieve any sort of sustainability. I love that Suburbia's largest source of tension is keeping your own ambitions in check. Number 4, Kingdom Builder. Suburbia may have been an abstracted game that is incredibly thematic, but Kingdom Builder is an abstracted game with almost no theme, though it looks beautiful and evokes a setting quite well. What that setting is? Generic fantasy. Who cares? While its entire premise on its face may sound simple, where your turn consists of drawing a card, then placing three houses on a depicted terrain, adjacent if possible, you'll soon realize that it's just a massive puzzle where you'll look for ways to gain powers, capitalize on placement, and interfere with your opponents all game long. But above all, my favorite part is the replayability, with three scoring conditions and four boards, along with their special power tiles, drawn per game. It makes every session fresh, exciting, and unique. Number 3. Archipelago 
Archipelago is by far the squishiest game on my list. I would say about a good quarter of the rules in this game are virtually never applicable or too nebulous in their strategic significance that it's not worth the bother. But what it does, it does so well. Emergent maps set in a beautiful Caribbean archipelago where you are generating and trading resources. What makes the game special, aside from the look and the real PC turn-based strategy without fighting sort of vibe to the game, is that every player has a card showing a game end trigger and global scoring condition, so everyone is wondering whether the other player's church is trying to drive the end of the game, score points at the end of the game, or is just a church because churches are great to have. Speaking of which, I really dig the tragedy of the common semi-co-op aspect of the game. If players act too selfishly, harmony in the archipelago goes awry and every player loses. Well, as harmonious as Larkabellago can be, I can't talk about this game without talking about colonialism, and there are some really questionable generalizations and downright offensive imagery in the game, from the workers or happy natives having notably lighter skin and welcoming demeanor than the unhappy, angry population symbol, to the fact that population itself is tracked with the white meeple and the civil unrest that everyone is fighting against is a black meeple. But part of what makes Archipelago so interesting to me is that it attempts to comment on these things, albeit in a pretty ham-fisted way. Exploiting the local population results in an uprising that the game seems to believe that the colonialists deserve, whereas working collaboratively with the local population results in a happier workforce. Or maybe it's just more placated. When you start digging into the moral implications of what the game is attempting to say, things unravel fast, but it is a good game, and unlike many, many, many other games that just pretend that the exploitation of indigenous populations wasn't an aspect of westward expansion, Archipelago at least attempts to do something with it. Rant over, let's move on with the list. Number two, Spirit Island. If Archipelago is a bit ambiguous about its moral stance on its subject matter, Spirit Island makes no qualms about putting players in the position of gleefully wrecking havoc on its colonial invaders. Spirit Island is the perfect balance of strategic and thematic gameplay, where the conceptual nature of the spirits is imbued into each of their mechanics. Like Root, Spirit Island plays wildly different depending on what spirit you are, but unlike Root, it scales spectacularly well from solo to four players, and there is a depth of tactical gameplay that extends beyond the asymmetry. Spirit Island is a cooperative game of mutual empowerment and delightful synergies. What's more is that through the changing perimeters like scenarios, adversaries, and difficulty level, the game seems to have limitless possibilities. Sure, it may drive AP players to the brink of insanity, and yes, sometimes there is a feeling of perpetual struggling until suddenly you're not, and then you just kind of go through the motions to finish out the objective, but no cooperative game has ever given me such a sense of depth, finesse, and replayability. Number one, terraforming freaking Mars. Empowerment. There are games I love with no progression and limited choices, but if there's one thing I adore, it's empowerment, which is the feeling Terraforming Mars delivers on so well. This doesn't necessarily mean an engine building game, though it often does. It's about the freedom and ability to pursue interesting choices and feeling successful in your endeavors. If you want to be the bacteria and plant king of Mars, man, you got it. You want to be the real estate queen synergizing on every new city on the board, chances are you'll have the means 
needs to do so. No, it won't always be the winning strategy, and no, you won't always get the card flips that you were hoping for, but no game goes as far as terraforming Mars and allowing you to hone your capabilities into an incredibly specific machine, as much influenced by your choice as it is the limitations presented to you by the cards you draw. Combine that with a game that capitalizes on its theme so incredibly well, scales well, has a killer solo experience, and has options for faster tactical play versus longer strategic games, and you have the game that for two years has been the one that I've wanted to play again and again and again and again. Terraforming Mars is far from a perfect game, but its strengths are the things I look for the most, and it is my favorite game, well, at least as of 2018. Thank you for listening to the Cardboard Herald. As always, everything we do is ad-free and audience-supported. If you'd like to help keep it that way, find the Patreon link at the top of our webpage, CardboardHerald.com. We have several levels of support with various rewards. If you enjoyed the show, we do a whole bunch of other stuff, including reviews, interviews, and recommendations across writing, podcasts, and video. You can find that on our YouTube channel or by visiting any of our social media or our website. So with that out of the way, thank you again for listening to the Cardboard Herald. Thank you.